Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're partway through chapter 31 on page 306. And the subject heading or the section heading is a wedding. And um, uh, please bear with me. Sometimes I'll trip over my words. But I hope that you enjoyed the words of Joseph Smith III. Enjoy. A wedding. I reached home on February the 24th in time to be present. There I am, tripping over my words straight away. In time to be present at the, at the marriage that evening of my daughter, Mary Audentia, to Benjamin M. Anderson. Just what incidents have intervened between the funeral of my stepfather and my homecoming, I cannot state, for they have slipped from memory. The day I reached Lamoni was a stormy one. The month had been wet and the roads were in horrible condition. Along in those years, our house was usually pretty well filled with various dependents and working people employed about the place. Our household frequently averaging 20 in number during the winter months. At that time, my wife was carrying on some enterprises on her own responsibility, which necessitated the employment of extra hands. Among those working on the place were Wells Palmer, a raw-boned Yankee from New York State, and Jay Whitehead, from also from the East, another who was a, who had been an inmate of my family since we had built our home, was Thomas Jacobs, the Irish architect and contractor I have before mentioned. We also had with us my wife's father and mother, and doubtless, as was usual in those days, a homelessly elderly woman or two. Taken altogether, our home was indeed a busy place, full of interest and activity. When I reached there through the February storm, ploughing through the deep mud, already beginning to freeze toward night, I was quite ready indeed to appreciate its warmth and comfort and to find its bustle of wedding preparations very welcome and interesting. The marriage ceremony was performed by Elder Henry A. Stebbins, then recorder of the church. It is not necessary to mention the names of the guests, though owing to the recent bereavement in our family, they were few in number, being confined to relatives of the families involved. Many of them have now passed out of time. It was a pleasant gathering and a scene of much good cheer and happiness, marred by only one little incident. Through some oversight, a young lady who had been helping in the home and was much interested in the event was not notified that the moment for the ceremony had arrived and being busy with some preparation of refreshment in the back part of the house, missed witnessing the wedding. This was a great disappointment to her and tears were much in evidence for some little time. Though she tried to take the incident philosophically, the rest of us felt nearly as bad as she and very sorry it occurred. Her name was Jenny Rabidou. It was she who had the wedding dress for the occasion.
she who had made the wedding dress for the occasion. The young man to whom my young daughter was united in marriage was the third son of brother Andrew K. Anderson, a farmer who had come from Norway in the middle of the century, settling first in Illinois and then in Iowa in the early 70s under the auspices of the first united order of Enoch. Benjamin, whom we called Ben, came from his school life into the Herald office to work, beginning as a compositor. Through proximity, mutual love and preference, his acquaintance with my daughter resulted in marriage. This daughter was the first among the children of my second wife to marry, and we were well pleased with the choice she had made. Brother and sister A.K. Anderson are highly respected members of the community in which they live, as are their other sons and daughters. The sons are Andrew, a farmer in the vicinity of Lamoni, Daniel, quite prominent in county and state as a worker in the ranks of the Republican Party, and at the time of this writing serving his fourth term as postmaster in Lamoni, Oscar, a banker in the same town, and David, a teacher in the State University at Seattle, Washington. The, the two daughters are Anna, who married as his second wife brother, David Dancer, to whom she bore two sons, David and Howard, and nearly still at home with her parents. The other connections made by the young people of this family through marriage may be of interest here. Daniel married Annie, eldest daughter of brother John Scott, who came to Lamoni with the Herald Office Force in 1881, serving in the capacity of foreman. Oscar married Belle, eldest daughter of Apostle William H. Kelly, David married Roxanna, elder daughter of brother Elijah B. Gaylord, who came to Lamoni from southwestern Iowa, member of an old Latter-day Saint family, while Andrew, nearing his half-century mark, married a young widow, Ida Northcutt Horner, a granddaughter of sister William Marks, second wife of the early church pioneer. The entire family of brother A.K. Anderson is intact as yet and fill an honourable niche in the life of their communities. Some ten years ago, my son-in-law Ben became an employee of the Carpenter Paper Company of Omaha and is one of their trusted and successful salesmen. He owns a comfortable home across the street from mine here in Independence, shared by the three daughters and one son, which have come to bless the union formed on the February evening I have described. Bertha, Audentia, Doris, Zuelkia, Duane Smith and Lucy Rogine. I have heard an old axiom to the effect that when the devil has a grudge against a man, he usually pays it off in sons-in-law. But I may say that up to the date of this recording, either the adversary never had a grudge against me, or he has been too busy with other affairs to attend to his obligation to me in this matter. Or it may be he has concluded to please me by giving me a day of grace. Better still, perhaps he has forgotten his grievance altogether. At any rate, I may say in passing that my son-in-law, Ben Anderson, has in all his dealings with me proved himself to be kind and upright and is one of the 
honourable men of business in the world of today. Also, without exception, the men that my daughters have married have been men of good common sense, kindly in feeling and honourable, and bound to be in the ties of affectionate friendship and common interests. So far, there has never been a break in the harmony of my relations with any of them. Such statements may be considered unusual in such a book as this, but I feel it is due these men that they should here be set down as a part of the record of my family life. Next heading, Conference of 1891. The Conference of 1891 was held at Kirtland from April 6th to the 14th inclusive. Perhaps the most important action was that the appointment of Brother Edmund L. Kelly as presiding bishop was ratified. He chose as his councillors Brethren George H. Hilliard, then of Central Iowa, then of Central Illinois, and Edwin A. Blakesley, son of the former Bishop of Galleon. Of these, Brother Hilliard continued to serve in this office until his death in 1912, while Brother Blakesley still occupies. At the conference of last year, 1913, the latter was by revelation called to be a bishop and was so ordained. And at the conference of this year, by command, he was more closely associated with the work of the bishopric. A son of Bishop E. L. Kelly was also called this year to serve in the office of bishop. His acceptance of the call is pending at this date, although he has taken a place at work in the department. My memorandum for 1891 contains a note stating that on Sunday night, April 12th, I lectured on the subject of temperance in College Hall at Willoughby, a few miles west of Kirtland. The effort was the result of some interest and activity of a brother of Elder Myron H. Bond resident there. With his family, this man held a good position in society. Though recognised as spiritualists, the group in which he worked was strongly in favour of the temperance movement, and through judicious advertisement, I was greeted with an excellent audience. It was a privilege to place before them the opinions of our church people on this topic and to voice my conviction, my own convictions about the great amount of arduous work necessary to be done before it will be possible to wipe out the liquor traffic or make it unfashionable and undesirable to drink intoxicating beverages. When this educational work is accomplished, the manufacture and sale of intoxicants as beverages will cease of necessity. I view as impracticable and ineffective the plan of making the liquor question a party measure by including it in the platform of either of the two important political groups or of one specifically devoted to that object. While opposed to the use and sale of intoxicating drinks, I do not believe that men can ever be legislated into becoming angels of sobriety. Such a desirable condition can only be accomplished by a persistent and consistent policy of education through which people may eventually come to regard it a disgrace to be addicted to drink under any circumstances. These had been my views up to the time of that temperance lecture in Willoughby, and I may add that I may not see I that I have not seen any reason to change them since then. 
After the close of conference, I spent some time in visiting in Kirtland and vicinity, lecturing on temperance in the temple and elsewhere, baptising, confirming, blessing, administering and preaching. I had the pleasure one day of meeting Judge Charles T. Granger of the Supreme Court, who attended my services on the Sabbath. He was a descendant of one who had occupied in the front ranks of the church in my father's day when the organisation was flourishing at Kirtland. Starting home on the 22nd, I stopped off at Burlington, greeting the brethren and saints there. Among these were Dr James J Stafford, the families of McFarland, Fred Johnson, his son-in-law Charles Craig and my old-time friend William D Morton, whose guest I always became on visiting in that place. Others met there were A.D. Richter, John Nichols and S.K. Holston, former residents of Nauvoo. I spoke for them three times on Sunday in York Hall in the forenoon, in the Methodist Church in the afternoon and in the Knights of Pythias Hall in the evening. Thus the day was well filled and I continued on my journey home next day, feeling I had been permitted to scatter some seed by the way. Next subheading, Minnesota. Routine work in the office and at home occupied my time for some weeks. About the middle of June, I went to Detroit, Minnesota, to fill an engagement made with my brother Alexander and brother I.N. Roberts. It was to attend a week's meeting planned for that little town. The officers of the branch, with T.J. Martin and William Nunn at their head, had secured the fairgrounds for the use of this reunion. I was met by Brother Roberts and became the guest of Brother Nunn, who lived some few miles below Detroit on Lake Suzanne. The days which followed were well filled with affairs of the reunion, preaching duly as required. For recreation, we enjoyed fishing excursions to the little lakes nearby. Becker County, of which Detroit is the county seat, has 40 lakes, seven of which are united by little streams forming a circlet. It was said that at their best season, it was possible for a man to traverse all seven, paddling the whole distance in a canoe. So nicely are they arranged by nature. By what I witnessed on this visit... I was made acutely aware of the terrible waste and damage being accomplished by American industry in forests and fields. The level of the lakes had been lowered so much by the diversion of their water for commercial purposes that many of the mills built on that running streams that many of the mills built on the running streams between them, formerly dependent upon dams in those streams for power, had been compelled to install engines in their plants. There was one near Brother Nunn's place. The bottom of the dam and sluiceway were, high, were left high and dry several feet above the level of the lake. One result of this condition was a marked decrease in the wheat crop, it having run from 45 to 60 bushels an acre down to 12 bushels the year I was there. 
On the 4th of July, there was a celebration held on the shore of the lake where the neighbours gathered in genial native festival and in the pleasant glades enjoyed themselves in friendly association and with all the concomitants of such occasions. The event was rather notable for the absence of intoxicating liquor or evidences of its use. Mentioning the pastime of fishing which attended this reunion, I recall that a half day of the sport spent in company with Alexander at Lake Suzanne yielded so many fish that we finally decided it was simple, simple, simply slaughter and not sport. We pulled to the shore with a supply sufficient for several families of saints and had nearly £100 left over which the husband of a member sold at the village. At this time I became well acquainted with William MacLeod. MacLeod. Hmm. Pronounced MacLeod. At Cormorant, near where I enjoyed some days of splendid fishing in Pelican Lake. He was a wagon maker. There, with a wife who belonged to the church, he was a fine singer and took a real pleasure in leading the singing at our services. As is seen by his name, he was Scotch and was one of the pioneers of that country. I thoroughly enjoyed his acquaintance and the fishing expeditions we shared. In fact, my whole visit to that northern state I regard as one of the pleasant memories of the year 1891. Next heading, the Mary Morton. Alexander stayed on with Brother Roberts for a time after the reunion, but I returned home via St. Paul. Purely from sentiment, I engaged passage on the boat Mary Morton. In the year 1856, I had visited the town of Hastings, just below the falls of St. Crox, and had enjoyed a delightful trip down the river, a trip which memory had surrounded with such a halo, I felt a desire to repeat the pleasure. It pains me to recall that the pleasure was not forthcoming. Many changes had occurred to bring about factors than joy into the picture. I was amazed to discover that the waters of that majestic river had fallen so low that the stream was quite shallow and narrow. I could have thrown a pebble across it at St. Paul, I am sure. The boat, small as it was, had difficulty in keeping afloat. Had not the government, through a system of dams, forced the water into a deeper channel in the centre of the stream, the boat could not have proceeded at all. A travesty indeed upon the old-time, lively and profitable steamboat traffic. The trip occupied two nights and two days. The weather was very hot, and when reposing in the cabin berth, I fairly sweltered. If I kept outside sitting in the bow, I was more comfortable, even inclined to be chilly towards evening. Added to these disagreeable conditions, I was visited by my old enemy, neuralgia, which, which effectually dissipated what fragments of pleasure might otherwise have been left to me. 
I was glad indeed when the trip was over and I could get away from the boat. I recall a number of incidents attending this disappointing trip down the Mississippi on the Mary Morton. Among the passengers was a clergyman of the Church of England's persuasion and several members of that denomination. The man's pastorate, I understood, was at Quincy, whether he was returning from a vacation. I took a bit of interest in watching him and the singular manoeuvring of certain young women who evidently were not of his congregation, though likely were of his church. The passenger list was small and there was considerable unrest on the part of the young people aboard, abroad as to how the time of the journey should be passed. It happened that this preacher and the young people of his acquaintance enjoyed themselves immensely by chatting, reading and much playing of cards all of which seemed to afford them considerable merriment. A dancing party was organised, one of the ladies playing the piano to furnish the musical accompaniment. I noticed the young clergyman was very much in demand as a partner in this, division, this diversion. It happened that when Sunday came, the clergyman was requested to preach and conduct divine service in the afternoon. This he did, giving a dissertation on a portion of John's Gospel, in which the topic of love was very prominent. This afforded me some moments of contemplation and enjoyment as we listened to some of the points he made, especially since my attention had earlier been attracted to the gentleman through the evident zeal or the evident zest in which he participated in cards and dancing. Having an opportunity to talk with him, I broached the subject of worldly amusements and the propriety or impropriety of church members and leaders indulging in them. I did not make myself known to him as a religionist, but questioned him rather closely as to his opinion and the possible result which might follow should church members indulge in such pleasures. He very frankly stated that he had chosen the profession of preacher from a consideration of the opportunities it afforded for enjoyable associations and for the very freedom from criticism it offered for such indulgences as I had mentioned. I gathered directly that he was in it for the good time and he could get out of it. He used tobacco, smoked, read novels, for he had one in his hand when he, we talked. He offered some excuses for the paucity of his sermon by saying he had never before attempted to speak without being clad in his surplice and vestment adding that he did really think he had done very well considering he had not on the accustomed garments and marvelled that a set of them was not kept on the boat for use on such occasions. This apology or explanation was very amusing to me. I really enjoyed the idea that he thought himself embarrassed in trying to officiate in divine service without his vestments, as if they were necessary accomplishment, accompaniments to a proper train of thought. With the aid of the young people, the song service was fair and the hour of devotion had passed pleasantly, affording possibly the only mitigating event of that highly uncomfortable trip. The government required that when the passing the government required that when passing the various wing dams, the steamer should blow a whistle. In my nervous and suffering condition, it seemed that the whistle was in use every half an hour during that journey. It screeches adding materially to the jumping agony in my tense nerves. 
In musing over the differences between this trip and the one I had made in 1856 on the same steamer, I found some retrospective pleasure. That former one was made in the company of the young woman who had promised to become my wife and was glorified by that association. I had come up the river to Hastings for the purpose of accompanying her back home, and of course everything about the environment and circumstances was rosy-hued. What human or material condition could have prevailed to prevent those happy circumstances from sanctifying the voyage? Abounding health, youth, love and happy prospects were mine. The rush and ripple of the water, the motion of the steamer, the balminess of the air, the leisurely chats all combined to enhance my enjoyment in the society I prized. The country along the river was new and very lovely. When a stop was made at Red Wing on the west side of the river, we went ashore to stroll about the town or along the edge of the high bluffs, where we had a sublime and beautiful view of the river, with its bordering trees and shrubbery. Towns along the stream were quite few and far apart, and I can still see brightly in memory the wide expanse of rippling water, with its overhanging verdure, as watched from the cabin deck beside the woman with whom I was in t was to form a life partnership in marriage. Certainly all this, cherished in memory, was quite in contrast to the discomforts and dreary routine, the heat and annoyance, the monotonous nerve-racking rack whistle, the suffering and loneliness which marked this trip down the same waters in 1891. Howbeit, even as darkest... Days and longest nights are ever followed by dawn and reoccurring charm of beauty and promise. So this unpleasant journey, journey came to an end. The familiar sound surroundings at Burlington were reached and finally the dear, dear refuge of home and loved ones where peace, comfort, affection and content were once more mine to enjoy. Thanks to the kind providence who had presided over my earthly existence and its Nutrient affairs. Next heading Logan reunions. The full reunion of 1891 was again held at Logan. Elders Blair and Lambert assisted me in charge. No particular reminiscence seems connected with this meeting other than that we had rainy weather a goodly portion of the time. The grounds were rather wet and we had some difficulty in keeping the large tent up. The general feeling of the saints, however, was excellent. The Sundays were comparatively fair and comfortable circumstances attended the meetings. Very few being seriously interrupted by the rain. Little of the real enjoyment and profit which these meetings associations had come to afford was lost and at the close I returned to my home feeling grateful that I had once more been privileged to attend the reunion of the reorganised church. Perhaps an apology should be offered to the readers of this book for the frequent lapse of time concerning which no events are recorded. I was extremely busy, frequently so constantly engaged in service in one place or another that I had neither time nor disposition to make ex extended notations of events or indeed even brief ones. This year of 1891 seems to be one in which my diary is more conspicuous by its ellipses than by its entries. 
My stenographer says that from the date of my return from Logan, my memorandum book is just one interesting blank. And so the year which had witnessed the passing from life of one daughter, the marriage of another and the laying away of the man who had stood in the place of a father to me during my youth and manhood slips away into the dimming recesses of the vanished past. And that is the end of chapter 31. Thank you for joining me.